0: Morning. Good morning, please take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 23, you need your Bibles open this morning, Genesis chapter 23, we can actually do a whole chapter in one sermon this week. I read a great, great quote from Adoniram Judson on Tuesday of this week, it says, the future is as bright as the promises of God, I love that, the future is as bright as the promises of God of God. Last week, we talked all about the promise of God, and the promise of God is the blessing of good for the people of God, the guarantee of good. I will surely bless you. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So the blessings, the future is as bright as the promises of God. God promises eternal good to his people. The Lord has promised good to me. The Lord has promised good to Abraham. At the end of Genesis 22. What's the very next thing that happens after God reaffirms his unbreakable promise of blessing to the people of God? The people of God die. Sarah dies. 22:17. I will surely bless you And Sarah died. What do you do with the promises of God in light of the death of God's people? What happens when you die before God's promises are fulfilled? What happens when the recipients of the promises die without receiving the promises? Well, Genesis 3 tells us. But it's sort of a strange story. This is one of the, the more obscure accounts in the Abraham Cycle. We don't generally pay much attention to Genesis 23, and so it's tempting to just gloss over it. Why is so much time given to the purchase of a gravesite? It's kind of strange. The story could potentially be unclear. Why is this here? But I'm going to argue that the story is not unclear at all, and it's not unimportant at all, because this passage practically screams at us and begs us not to miss. Its point, which is an important point. If we would just slow down and read a little more carefully, many of our problems of understanding would be solved. And that applies here as well. Why is this here? It tells us. Look over the text. I want to run through it before we read it, actually. Uh, I got one of my favorite questions to receive this week. I received it. I think it's one of the most important. One of my favorite questions is. How do I read the Bible? How do I more effectively study the Bible? Help me to better understand and study God's word. So important. Part of my job is not just to teach you what a text says, but to teach you how to figure out what a text says for yourself. So observe. The main thing you need to learn to do is observe more slowly. Look for key words. Look for repetition. Look for how a passage opens And closes. All of these are hints and indicators of the meaning of a passage. You know what much of my time is spent doing and trying to understand God's word? It's reading it again and again and again and again and again. Keep reading. Look at verse two. There's some hints and important indicators in the text here. We don't often specify where someone dies. But when we talk, we more generally uh, specify when and how someone died. When did she die? How did she die? But here, where Sarah dies, is singled out in the land of Canaan. That's important. And it becomes all the more important when we jump to the end of the passage and look at verse 19 and we see repetition. Not just repetition, but repetition at the open and repetition at the close. So Abraham buries Sarah, his wife, in the land of Canaan. Hmm. And were we to think of this in context, we may realize that we haven't heard that word in a while. Canaan. In fact, we haven't heard that word since back in chapter 17, verse 8. And we would make note of that. And then as you start to focus on that repetition, you're going to start to notice all kinds of related repetition throughout the passage. You see place repeated in 4, 9, and 20. You see land repeated not only in 2 and 19, but in 7, 12, 13, 15, And then you start to notice all these nouns of place. Cave in 9, 11, 16, 19, 20. Field, 9, 11, 13, 17, three times, 19, and 20. Well, this all of a sudden isn't that difficult to figure out. And there's more. Four times in 4, 9, 18, and 20. You'll see property, property, possession, property. It's even more helpful if you're reading the King James on this part because it just says, possession, possession. Possession, possession, translates them all the same. Abraham says, give me possession at the beginning. And at the end, we had him given a field, a cave, a place in the land as a possession. And so pretty quickly, we know what this passage is about. It's about the promises of God. Which one? Canaan 17, verse 8. God says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. This is what God is doing in Genesis 23. He is fulfilling that promise. And not only is this just a further demonstration of God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. So application, God's faithful to Abraham, so you can trust him to be faithful to you as well. That's true. But also this land promise and its fulfillment here specifically relates to you. But we Americans, many of us, so steeped in a dispensational background, get the land promise so wrong that we actually miss the bigness and the beauty of what is happening here and how it relates to us. So we need to clarify the land promise. And with all that said, the passage is pretty simple. We have the death of God's people and then we have the promises to God's people and we have these things coming together and we're trying to figure out how they relate. We have loss before land. Or if you are going to use land as a synonym for gain, we have loss before gain, or cross before crown, or death before life. And so we're just going to focus on two points this morning. We're going to look at the loss, and then we're going to look at the land. But I want you to note the emphasis of the text and the time that it gives to each of these. You can tell by the amount of space and detail it devotes. There is a great lack of detail regarding Abraham's loss and mourning but then this strange, great excess of detail regarding Abraham's land and possession. we get got like two verses for Sarah and the loss in the mourning, and then this whole long, intricate, complicated process that we need to figure out. So we're going to look at the loss, but the focus of the text is on the land. We are going to experience loss in this life. We need to rightly understand mourning. We need to understand its importance, but we need to focus on the gain which is represented by the land. So we we'll look at loss, but let's understand loss in light of the cross. Let's understand the loss in light of eternity. Let's not forget Philippians 1.21. Do we actually believe this? Maybe COVID has demonstrated that we don't actually believe this. To live is Christ. To die is not loss. In Christ, it's gain. So loss and land. Big, simple idea, so you can at least get this uh, if you're going to check out. Death cannot stop the promises of God. Death cannot stop the promises of God. Why? Because the promises of God to you in Christ are so much bigger and are so much better than you realize. They are bigger than this life. If that's the case, then death cannot Touch them. Death cannot alter them. In Christ, the loss of this life actually only becomes the gain of the true life to come. And so this text wants to encourage you with the bigness of the promises of God. Not even death can touch them. So let's read the text and see if that actually has anything to do with the text. Genesis chapter 23. We've kind of run through some of it. So look for some of the repetition that we have discussed as I read it for you. I'm going to read the whole thing. But I want you to pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold you from you, his tomb, to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead." Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field in Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate. Of his city, After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. If you would bow with me, and let's first go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I love your word. I want to love your word more. Father, we love your word. And help us to love your word more. Father, I'm very thankful for somewhat obscure passages like these. Father, you have inspired and ordained that these passages be part of your word. Father, you have sovereignly decreed that today would be the day that your people gathered together here and online would look at and study this passage so, Father, I pray uh, that you would give us a, a focus on your text. I pray that you would give us a, a hunger for your word and a desire to understand it because it's in understanding your word that we grow in our understanding of you. Because it's through your word, Father, that you mediate your presence to us, uh, that you reveal your promises to us, and that you would encourage and edify and strengthen your saints. Father, this is only something that you can do by your spirit through your word. So, Father, please help me. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. We cannot even preach the word. We cannot even hear the word. So help us now, we pray. Glorify your name. Edify your saints. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we start with the loss. It's interesting. In chapter 22, Abraham avoids death. In chapter 23, he accepts death. And so last week, I argued that verses 15 through 19 of chapter 22 are all about the promises of God. What are those promises generally? Well, big picture, generally, the promise is blessing. I will surely bless you. I promise to do good to you. That's what God's saying. What good? How? Well, remember, the blessing manifests itself in two primary ways. Seed. Verse 17 of chapter 22. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring, your seed, after you. right, so that's God reiterating and repeating the promise of a seed, a son, from whom would come a people, from whom would come the seed, the son. So the promise of blessing is carried out in the provision of the seed. And then second, the one that we look at and discuss less, is Land rest of verse 17, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And that's an important word in our chapter. That's God repeating and reiterating the promise of a land. The promise of blessing is somehow carried out in the provision of the land. So God's promises, blessing, seed, land. Those are the promises of God to Abraham. That's a summary. Blessing, seed, land. And that's what verses 15 through 19 were all about. Summarizing those promises, reiterating those promises. And then the following chapters are about realizing those promises. Verses 20 through 24, anticipating chapter 24, which we'll do next week. We're going to see if we can do that whole big text in one sermon. Wait for that. Um, Well, All of that is about the promise of the seed. So we come back to that next week. And then chapter 23 is all about the promise of the land. So God reiterates seed, land, to Abraham. Chapter 23, God starts to fulfill it. Chapter 24, God starts to fulfill it. But right then, into the middle of all this promise of blessing and good, we read in verse 2, And Sarah died. It's a bit abrupt. It's a bit shocking. But it shouldn't be. Death has been a repeated refrain running throughout this book of beginnings since all the way back when god warned that the wages of sin is death in genesis 2 17. then sin enters into the world and death through sin in chapter 3 cain murders abel in chapter 4 cain's line the seed of the serpent the city of man the very first city culture is developing we'll talk thursday more about that and then we find the true culmination of that city of man as it climaxes in 4.23 with Lamech's boast of murder. Death characterizes the city of man. But chapter five, we see that death also characterizes the city of God as the refrain runs throughout that chapter, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then there's chapter six where everyone dies except for Noah and his family. Church, death is one of the main themes of Scripture. It is everywhere. It is a reality that all must face, that you must face. Do you ever think about your impending, inevitable death? You should. One of my favorite philosophy books is by a Frenchman named uh, Luke Ferry. It's called uh, A Brief History of Thought, A Philosophical Guide living. It's really, it's one of the best overviews out there of uh, kind of the history of philosophy and its importance to life. It's not a Christian book, but Ferry actually gives Christianity a pretty fair shake, unlike uh, many others. And this is what Ferry writes at the very beginning of this book. He says, what do we as people truly desire above all else? What's the main thing that we desire? To be understood, to be loved, not to be alone, not to be separated from our loved ones. In short, not to die and not to have them die on us. But daily life will sooner or later disappoint every one of those desires. You see, that's what we truly desire above all else, not to die. The very things that we live for are the very things that death takes away. And Ferry then goes on in his first chapter to unpack Edgar Allan Poe's most famous poem, The Raven, with a repetition of the refrain, quoth the raven, nevermore, nevermore, nevermore. Fairy writes, Poe is suggesting that death means everything that is unrepeatable. Death means everything that is unrepeatable. Death is in the midst of life, that which will not return, that which belongs irreversibly to time past, which we have no hope of ever recovering. He says, death is the problem of philosophy. Death is the problem of life, and death is the problem of your life. It will intrude itself on your life at some point. And so here we see death intruding itself on Abraham's life. Promises, promises, death. And then look at the rest of verse 2. We've already noted the emphasis On the place of her death in the land. That will be our second point. We're coming back to that. But look at Abraham's response to her death. He went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. In this book of firsts, these are the first recorded tears in the Bible. I'm sure there were more tears uh, before this, but these are the first recorded tears. And so here we see that the appropriate Christian response to death is mourning and weeping. We are not Stoics. I need this reminder. David was a man of many tears. Jesus was a man of many tears. Our culture's aversion to death and its avoidance of death has increasingly kind of crept into churches. Right? We don't really want to be confronted with death. And when we are, we want to sanitize it. Uh, we want to minimize it. Instead of mourning death now, we celebrate life. Um, Celebrating life is is not a bad thing. But let's be clear. We should and we must mourn death. And we simply have to let our Lord be our example here. I I preached a funeral last week. I always get to John 11 sometime in every funeral that I do. John 11 is a pretty striking scene. Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, the creator and Lord of life, all-powerful, all-knowing, Yet when his friend dies, shortest verse, 1135, Jesus wept. Think about that verse. Jesus has just told Martha 10 verses earlier that he is the resurrection and the life and that whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. He knows that he is moments away from raising Lazarus back to life. And yet... Coming to the tomb, confronted with death, Jesus weeps. Why? That's because death is the enemy. Death is, uh, if you think about it, in kind of the naturalistic account of the world, death is the most natural thing in the world. But our response to it demonstrates that it's not responds it, response, it, it's an unnatural intrusion. Death was not meant to be. It is directly connected to sin and Satan. It is the enemy. It is tragic. And so Jesus weeps, even knowing what he is about to do. Death is inevitable. Every single one of us, you, we, we live to die. The Book of Common Prayer, in the midst of life, we are in death. I love that line. In the midst of life, we are in death. And people used to understand, back when life was actually hard, and people faced suffering to a degree that we can barely comprehend, people used to understand that the role of the church was not primarily to make people's lives easier and more comfortable, it was to prepare people to die. You would think and hope that people would better understand that in light of these last eight months, but it seems that all the death has little effect. Things are going on as usual. Things actually seem to maybe be getting worse. But you are going to die. And when you do, you are going to meet the thrice holy, uh, perfectly just God. Are you prepared for that? In the face of death, Abraham mourns because he loves his wife. They've been married for probably over a 100 years They would have won the wedding, longest married dance thing, right? She's she's his, and she has been his for a long time. He has been one flesh, one-souled with her for a century, and now she's gone. And so Abraham, the man of faith, mourns. He has experienced great loss as the great enemy claims his wife, and so he weeps. Matthew Henry writes about these verses. He says, it is not only lawful, but it is a duty to lament the death of our near relations, both in compliance with the providence of God, who thus calls us to weeping and mourning and in honor to those to whom honor is due. Tears are a tribute to our deceased friends. I love this part. When, bo- when a body is sown, it must be watered, but we must not sorrow as those that have no hope, for we have a good hope, through grace, both concerning them and concerning ourselves. When a body is sown, it must be watered. Keep that in mind. That's going to play a role in the second point, I think. So yes, we, we mourn. But as Matthew Henry rightly points out there, referencing 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, we mourn, but we do so differently. We do so in hope. We are all of us under A sentence of death. We are all of us terminal cases. It could be COVID now or any number of things later. And knowing and accepting this truth can can remove a fair bit of unnecessary shock and fear um, because then we'll have escaped this kind of modern Western mindset that just refuses to face death, refuses to deal with it, plan with it, prepare for it, or live in light of that impending death. But we know it's coming. We see it here. It comes for all of us. We mourn it when it does. But listen, we do not fear it. We sing it regularly. We just sang it. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Do we believe that? It sure seems like there's been a lot of fear lately. Uh, Christians are supposed to face death differently than non Christians. We understand that there is something worse than physical death. We do not panic. We are not stricken with fear and paralysis because in Christ, we know the end. That's going to be point two. We know eternity. And so listen, while we should absolutely, of course, take reasonable steps to be safe, we also absolutely should be responding to our current circumstances differently than the world is responding to them. Because for the believer, the time of death is transformed and the fear of death is removed by the death of Christ. Death is transformed in the light of eternity. It remains an enemy. It remains an outrage, a sign of judgment, a reminder of sin, something to be hated and mourned. But also, from another perspective, for the Christian, death becomes nothing more than the means through which we pass into true life. We pass through death, and death dies, because it has died and been defeated in Christ. And so the more we can live in the consciousness of God's presence here and of the life to come, the easier it will be to anticipate the unqualified delight that will be experienced in God's presence there. And death is the means that God has now ordained uh, to get us there. The place that we say we most want to be with God, Paul's desire that we don't believe in Philippians 1, to die is gain. Do we actually believe that? And is not some, is this in part what God is doing right now? In part, I don't know exactly what God is doing right now. But is not some of the pain and sorrow in this life used in part by God's good and providential hand to make us homesick for heaven, to detach us from this world, to prepare us for the world to come uh, for heaven, to draw our attention to himself and away from ourselves, away from this world of merely physical things. Isn't that not in part what God is doing through all the difficulties that we are facing? He's saying, hey, wake up. There's something more important. There is a life to come. Are you considering your impending death and your uh, standing in that life to come? So Abraham mourns. That, That is the appropriate response to the death of a loved one. It is to mourn and it is to weep, but It is also to hope. It is to do so in Christ, in light of Christ, in light of what he has done. We mourn, but we do so with hope because we, church, have great hope. And I think that's actually what most of this passage is about. And that's our second point as we move from loss to land. Death is big, but death is not the focus of this text. Abraham mourns, but Abraham's mourning is not the focus of this text. The whole of Sarah's death and mourning get two verses. There are 18 more verses. And in those verses, Abraham acts. Abraham acts in faith because God's people believe that God's promises are bigger than this life. Let's run through the details of the story real quick. We've already observed a lot of it. Uh, Much of it is framed, look at verse three. Much of it is framed in verse three when we see Abraham go and speak to the Ketans. That's another one of the words that's repeated throughout this passage. If you're in the ESV, you'll look down at the bottom of the page at footnote seven, or if you're in the King James, you'll see this translated as the sons of Heth. That's literally what the Hebrew says. And we actually met Heth all the way back In chapter 10, verse 15, Heth, who is the son of Canaan, who is the son of Ham, the cursed line. So the Hittites are Canaanites. Uh, That's the main thing. One of the peoples that God specifically says in chapter 15, verse 20, when he first makes this land promise clear in 1520, God says that this land that he is going to give Abraham is currently occupied by these Canaanites, including The Hittites, and they're not yet going to give, God's not yet going to give Abraham whole possession of the land because the iniquity of the Amorites or all the Canaanites is not yet full. So main point, the Hittites are in Canaan. They are in the promised land. They currently possess the land. Abraham does not possess the land. They possess that which has been promised Abraham. And now his dear Sarah has died and he has no possession in that land. So what does he do? He's going to get some possession in that land. Don't miss this. God has promised him the land and Abraham is here acting in light of that promise. Abraham is acting and living in light of the promises of God. He is acting in faith and he is acclaiming a piece of that promise. Look at verse 4. Don't miss Abraham's identity. He starts off by saying, I am a sojourner and foreign. Church, we desperately need to reclaim that identity. Uh, this world is not our home. This country is not our home. Our hope is not in what happens Tuesday. Our hope is not at all in what happens in this world. Uh, Peter, the apostle, writes his first letter to the church to us, referring to us as elect exiles. In chapter 2, verse 11, he urges us, God's people, the chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's Israel, us, the the church. He urges us as sojourners and exiles. Philippians 3.20, Paul reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other savior. There is no political savior there is no cultural savior. There is no hope for this world, country or culture apart from Christ. Colossians 1:13. Paul says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of Christ. And you can only be a true citizen. You cannot have dual citizenship. You can only have a true citizenship in one of them. You can only love and serve one of them. You are a citizen of one and a foreigner in the other. Which is your home? Which are you focused on? Which are you pursuing and putting your hope in? Which gets your time and passion? How about this? Are you more excited about coming to church today? Or are you more excited about Tuesday and what's going to happen? Are you more excited and interested in what's going to happen on that big important day? What about today? What about right now? What gets your time and passion, your hope and your love and your joy? Christians like Abraham are sojourners and foreigners in whatever land we find ourselves in. And that is supposed to determine how we live and how we operate in that land. Back to verse 4. Main idea. Abraham says to the Hittites, here it is, Give me property. Better in the King James, I think. Give me possession among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Abraham is after possession. And then what we have in verses 5 through 16 is an example of the ancient Near Eastern practice of, of bartering and bargaining, some of which we just don't understand. Some of, it's, some of the details are beyond me, and I don't get all of them. But the main idea is, are clear. Let's look at it. We're going to run through it quickly. The game begins in verse 5. Like Abimelech in 21-22, the Hittites either recognize something special about Abraham. Either it's genuine. They call him Lord and and declare that he is a prince of God among them. Maybe they're recognizing God's presence with them. Or this is just the formal, somewhat flattering language that was expected in these elaborate exchanges. But notice their response in verse 6. Here is their counteroffer to Abraham's initial offer. Abraham says, give me property or possession. They say in verse 6, hey, you know, you use whatever tomb you'd like. Pick, Pick which one you'd ever like. Borrow the best tomb. He says, give me possession. They say, you can put Sarah in one of our possessions. And so the dance continues. Abraham rises. He bows in verse 7. Notice how formal it is. Notice notice how respectful it is. Abraham knows how to play this game. He doesn't want to use one of their tombs. He wants to own one of their tombs. He doesn't want to borrow. He wants to possess. And he has a specific tomb in mind. Look at 8 and 9. He says, Entreat Ephron, the son of Zohar, to give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Abraham is after property and possession. The cave he owns, I will purchase it, so I will own it. Ephron answers in verse eleven No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. Again it's hard to nail down for sure. Some of the details here. Is he being genuine? Is he just genuine? He's like, you know, I'm just a really nice guy. Abraham, you seem, you seem like a pretty good guy. Here you go. You just, you, you can have it. You, you can have the cave. It's possible. Like, I think it's unlikely. This is part of the process. This is part of the haggling. This is part of the game. And Abraham gets that. I would have been, to te- deal. I'm in. Like, give me the cave, right? I would have been tempted to take the free cave. Not Abraham. Verse 13. I give the price of the field. What price? He doesn't say. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Abraham has basically just said, name your price, and I will pay it. Verse 15. Ephron. (laughs) He was just trying to give away the land. No, he wasn't. 15. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? Well, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. How much is that? I don't know. We don't know. There's debate on this. In Jeremiah 32, nine, Jeremiah buys a field for 17 shekels. 400 shekels is a lot more than that, obviously. But you know, we just probably can't make a one-to-one comparison. We don't know the exchange rate or inflation or things like that. We really don't know. But most scholars think that this is an exorbitant price. Because there's supposed to be a bartering The, The game is supposed to continue. There's supposed to be a back and forth. Nope. Verse 16. Abraham's done. Abraham listens. He weighs out the silver and he pays Ephron's price. 17 and 18. So Ephron's field and all that is in it was made over to Abraham as a possession. Verse 20. Repetition. The field and the cave were made over to Abraham as property. Possession. Back to verse 19, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the land of Canaan. Abraham now has his first legal possession in the land. Abraham has acted in faith based on the promises of God, and he has acted to obtain a piece of that promise, a piece of that land, so that he could, did you catch the repetition, so that he could bury his dead. Bury Sarah in the land. That's the big idea. Abraham now has possession in the land. Sarah is now buried in the land. But what's the big deal? What's so important about the land? I mean, this is actually one of the themes of the book and one of the themes of the whole of Scripture. This is the blessing, but we so often get this aspect of it so wrong. But back in 2134 where we first saw some sort of settledness in the land for Abram. You remember this? We, we talked about this. What did we see him do? He doesn't have possession in the land, but he's settling a little bit in the land. This is back with Abimelech. And we saw him plant a tree in the land. You know, we argued that that in some way was an act of faith. right? He's, he's settling, he's planting, he, he's committing, he's there, he's home, he plants a tree. Well, here in 2319, Abraham plants his wife in the land as an act of faith. In 25, verse 9, we'll see Abraham himself planted in the land, in this same cave, in this same field, as an act of faith. And you know what the, what's the very last thing that happens in this book of beginnings? It's still 27 chapters away. We will get there in 2025 or something. Um, but, but flip to the end real quick. Look at how the end of beginnings... Uh, primarily the beginnings of life, look how this book of beginnings ends. It actually ends with death. Look first at 49.29. Look at 49.29. Jacob, Abraham's grandson. Jacob and his sons end up down in Egypt, out of the land. And so one of the last things that he does is he commands his son in 49.29, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Verse 30, the cave in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought to, bought to possess. Cave and field are repeated three times in those verses. And then look over at chapter 50, verses 24 through 26. Here's the very end. Joseph, Abraham's great grandson, says to his brothers, God will bring you up out of this land, Egypt, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He then made them swear that they would carry his bones with them so that he too may be planted in the land. That's, that's weird to us. What's the, why the bones? Why is that the last note of this book of beginnings? Well, think about it. Then, as is the case now, Burial is usually in one's native land. Where do you want to be buried? Home. I don't want to be buried in California. No offense to Jeremy. I'm sure it's a nice place. Um, But I've never been there. It's not home. I don't want to be buried there. Place matters. In choosing a place to be buried, you are in some way identifying yourself with that place. You are rooting yourself in that place. Sarah was born in Ur. She lived a long time in Ur. She was not buried in earth. She was buried in Canaan, the land of promise. Abraham is identifying her with the place of promise. And ultimately then, what Abraham is doing is he is identifying her with the God of the place of promise. You see, Sarah is home. She's in the place where God is present. Because listen, here's what we've got to get right. That's what the land Represents. Here's where we tend to get the land promise so wrong. It was never about the land, it was about what the land represented and pointed to. All the way back at the beginning of this series, it was 2018, I think, uh, the very first sermon on the very first chapter, the beginning of the beginning, we looked at how Genesis 1 was God the King establishing his kingdom. God the king, establishing his kingdom. Peter and I didn't work on this together. He talked about the kingdom of God, and I was sitting there like, yes, this is perfect. I wish you were all in Sunday school. God is building and establishing his kingdom in creation. And what is a kingdom? A kingdom consists of a people in a place under a rule. A kingdom is a people in a place under a rule. So Genesis 1, God creates His kingdom, the heavens and the earth, a place. And then he populates his kingdom, sixth day. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God's people were in God's place. And the purpose for God's people to be with God in his place, to love him and to be loved by him. That's what the garden represented. That's what made Eden paradise. God was there. God was literally with us. The very thing that we were created for, relationship and fellowship with God, it's there in that land. And that's what was lost and ruined with our sin. You see, sin is the rejection of the perfectly good rule and reign of God. It is rebellion against the king. Peter did it in Sunday school. What happens when you rebel against the king? You die. You get killed. And so we were cast out of the special place of the presence of God. And outside of the place of the presence of God, away from the God of life, is only death. The thing, the very thing we were made for, life everlasting with the good God himself, we forfeited with our sin. And that's the very thing. That God himself immediately begins working to restore for his people. We were created to be God's people in God's place and that was blessing. That was good. I have no good apart from you. In your presence there is joy. God's people in God's place is God's blessing. God now has come to Abraham and he has promised him blessing by giving to Abraham a people and then by planting them in a place. The promises of God to Abraham are all about restoring what was lost. It is about restoring God's people to fellowship with him. It's about the kingdom of God. And thus, the land promise made to Abraham was never ultimately about that little piece of land, Listen, the, the present uh, nation-state of Israel has nothing to do with this text and with this promise. Absolutely nothing. We've made the land promise, thinking it has something to do with that, into something it was never ultimately about. Something Abraham even understood it was never ultimately about. The land promise was never ultimately about that little piece of land. That's why we read Hebrews 11 again. Couldn't resist. We read it again today. Verse 10 of Hebrews 11 says Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 16, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. See, that's what the land promise is about. We see, as the, all of these Old Testament promises are our shadows. They are types. And then we see the substance of them in the New Testament. We see them fulfilled. The point of the sacrifices in the Old Testament was never the sacrifices. It's Jesus. Right? The point of the priest was never the priest. It's to get us to the great high priest. The point of the land was never about just that little piece of land. And in Genesis 23, this loss in the land is demonstrating to us that God's promises to his people are never exhausted in this life because they were specifically about and extend into the life to come. We will all of us die without having experienced the full fulfillment of the promises of God, barring the return of Jesus. But that does not mean that the promises have failed. That just means that the promises were always bigger. Than we could ever imagine. The promises were never just about this life or this land, but the life to come and the whole land, the whole of heaven and earth itself. The promises were never just about the earthly, but the eternal. And so we, all of us, will share Sarah's experience. Hebrews eleven thirteen. We will all of us die. In faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that we were strangers and exiles on the earth, church, we are strangers and exiles. We are seeking a homeland, but it's not here. It's not this land. The land. It's it's the whole. Thing. The land promise is ultimately about God coming back, the new heavens and the new earth, the whole of creation restored to the special place of the presence of God when Christ returns and makes all things new. Right when, when God gave Adam and Eve their first command, it wasn't just to build stuff and to make things. Right, It was to spread his glory to the ends of the earth and take the garden, which was the special place of God's presence, and expand that to the whole of creation. That's the cultural mandate. It's to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Uh, we failed to do that in our sin. Uh, that is not our job. That's Christ's job as the second Adam. And he comes and he remakes it and restores the whole land to God's people as the special place of his promise. And that's what God is guaranteeing here to us, his people. And this, then, is the answer to our question at the beginning. What do you do with God's promises in light of the death of God's people? What happens when God's people die without the promises being fulfilled? What's remembering this? It's remembering that the promises were never just about this little land or never just about this little life. And thus, that's never what we are to be about. It's not what we were created for, church. Church. We were created for eternity. We were created for so much bigger and better. And thus the promises of God are so much bigger and better. They are about heaven itself, about eternity, about life everlasting with God himself. They are about the kingdom, the people of God in the place of God under the rule of God. That's the kingdom. And that's what Christ has begun and will finish when he returns. And church, nothing can touch that. No election can touch that. Some of you are freaking out right now because one guy you think is going to be elected, and the others are you are freaking out because you think the other guy is going to be elected. Guess what? Who cares? I I know that's the wrong response. I don't care. It, It doesn't matter. God's will will be done. It will have no ultimate impact on the kingdom of God eternally Whatsoever God has ordained already what will happen on Tuesday, and he's ordained what he's going to do with what will happen on Tuesday, and the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. It won't. And so church, we don't panic. We don't fear. We're not worried. We can just sit back and watch, trusting the sovereignty and the goodness of God to bless and take care of and protect and save his people. That's what God is always doing. He is saving and protecting and preserving his People, And that's why we pray for his kingdom to come. That's why we are commanded to seek first his kingdom, because his kingdom is life. His kingdom is everything, because God is life. And he is what you were created for. He is what you forfeited and lost in your sin. And he then is thus your only hope of gain. The land is about the gain. The land is about being restored to the presence of God, about being restored to fellowship and relationship with God. And that is possible only through the seed, only through Jesus Christ, whom God promises to Abraham. He is the one who solves our sin and separation problem. He is the one who solves our death problem by dying that death for us, defeating that death for us, and then giving us new Making us into God's people, restoring us to God's place, and then reestablishing God's rule. See, that's what God is doing through these promises. It's so much bigger than Abraham, it's so much bigger than this little piece of land. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham understood it was bigger than that. This is all about getting things to Jesus, who would fix what we broke and restore what we lost. And God gives us a hint, He gives us a taste of the fulfillment of that ultimate promise here. Yes, Sarah dies, but she dies in the Lord. She dies forgiven, and thus she is ushered into the presence of the Lord. Yes, Sarah dies, but she dies in the land. And then her body is planted in the place that is symbolic of the presence of the Lord, waiting for the return of the Lord when her body will be resurrected and perfected. I don't have time for this right now. This is why Christians bury their dead. It has always been the pagan practice. uh, you, You can actually, historians in Europe will go back and they will trace the spread of Christianity in northern Europe through when burial practices began. Because we used to understand that it was pagans who burned their bodies. And it was Christians who planted their bodies. Why? Because of the promise of the resurrection. Because we believe that the body matters. That the body is us. And we're waiting for the day when Christ will return and reunite and restore that. Again, it doesn't mean, uh, every. oh no, what's, what's happened if we cremated again? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is how we treat our dead and how we treat our bodies preaches. And it preaches a theology of the importance of the body and of the trust that God has promised um, that he is going to come and resurrect and restore that body and restore the new heavens and the new earth. And so God's people have always planted those bodies in the ground, in dependence upon those promises that's what we're seeing here with sarah um, she's she's good right she's she's going to be restored fit for fellowship with the perfect god in his perfected and purified place that's what god is about always is that what we are about are you looking for and living for the kingdom are you passionate about what god is passionate about He has made you grand and glorious promises in Christ. You will die in all likelihood without full fulfillment of those promises. But through the gift of faith, through stories like these, you know that God's promises are are so much bigger and better than you ever imagined. God is making you like Him. God is giving you not a burial plot, not a little piece of land, but the entirety of the new heavens and the new earth where you will live a perfect life of goodness and gladness with Him. And so all of this now is preparing for all of that then. And then is so much better than now. And then is so much longer than now. And so live in light of that. Fix your minds on that. Eternity really, really matters. In light of eternity, Tuesday doesn't really, really matter. Fix your mind on eternity. And so, yes, there's, there's loss in this passage. Yes, you will experience loss in this life. But don't forget the land. Don't forget what the land represents. Don't forget the promises of God. There is eternal gain waiting for you in Christ. Live in light of that promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Father, help us to love that which you love. Help us to live for that which your son died for. Father, help our focus to be your focus. I pray that we would all of us increasingly seek first your kingdom. Father, I pray that your kingdom would come and your will uh, would be done. Father, I pray that you would increasingly um, form us into the image of your son. uh, Make us like Jesus. Father, give us the compassion of Jesus. Father, give us the drive of Jesus. Give us the desire of Jesus to save sinners. And to do that by preaching the good news of the gospel that is the only solution to the ultimate problem of death. And so I pray that you would give us wisdom for how best to do that. I pray that you would comfort and encourage your people this morning. Father, if any of us are anxious about Tuesday, Father, comfort us with eternal truths. Comfort us with the fact that you are sovereign that you ordained the beginning and the end. Uh, Father, nothing can uh, stand against uh, your will. It will be done. And the Father, we can trust and we can rest in you. Father, comfort your people this morning with all the frustrations and the difficulties and the pains and the losses uh, that we're experiencing right now in our lives. Father, comfort us with the fact that your promises are about the life to come. But Father, you are preparing us for that life through this life. And that these light and momentary afflictions in Christ are only preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Father, forgive us for how how we fail to be mindful of eternity. Father, forgive us for how lazy we are looking to Jesus. Father, fix our minds on Him. Now, teach us what it truly means to live our entire lives before Your face and for Your glory. For we are not our own; but You bought us with a price. So, Father, help us to now honor our lives, honor You with our entire lives. Father, use this church, use these people as individuals and as corporately as a body, to faithfully proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And appoint sinners uh, to Jesus Christ. Uh, Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.